KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. Do you ever feel like I just need to get that promotion, or I just need to make a little more money, or once I finish this project, I'll be happy? But it seems like you're always reaching for something more. This feeling that no matter how much you earn, how many accomplishments you achieve, how much praise you receive, it just doesn't feel like it's ever enough because you don't feel like you're ever enough. Manisha Takor is the author of Money Zen, The Secret to Finding Your Enough, a book about what she calls the cult of never enough. Money Zen is my phrase for a feeling of calm, confidence, and clarity around your relationship with money and the role that it plays in your life. I'm Matt Leon, and today on KYW News Radio In-Depth, Manisha shares what she's learned through personal experience and what sucks us into the cult of needing to achieve more and more and how you can break out and find balance and happiness. So to start the book, kind of give me the origin story. What went into writing it? Why'd you write it? I wrote the book because as I approached age 50, I completely face planted. I had a very serious health incident for the second time, which forced me to go on medical leave and be on bed rest for a period of time. And while on bed rest, I had plenty of time to reflect. And I realized I had spent my entire adult life trapped on the 24-7 hamster wheel of hustle culture. And my whole adult life had been past as a human doing instead of a human being. And I wanted to figure out how the heck this had happened to me. And more importantly, how to get out of this place. And so I went on a two-year research journey, which resulted in uh, the book, Money Zen, which I'm hoping now will help other people who feel they may be trapped in the cult of never enough find their escape path. So talk to me about that that cult of never enough. We kind of, when we were discussing this in-house here, we just talked about the idea that money truly can't buy happiness. Like it's an age-old axiom, but when right. you really dig into it, you know, it kind of talk about what it represents, what it what it's all about. So maybe people that don't kind of realize they're in the midst of it maybe can take a step back and think, wow, that that really does sound a lot like me. Yeah, well, first, I just want to say money can buy happiness. Let's just face it. If you do not have money, it is a very stressful problem. So I want to throw that platitude out the window. But there is new research that shows that there's a certain level of money above which, and that that level varies for every different person, but there's a certain level of money above which you've met your base Maslow hierarchy of the needs, you've got some enjoyment, but earning more money above that in the absence of emotional well-being is not going to increase your life satisfaction. And that really gets to what I'm speaking about here when I talk about the cult of never enough. Signals that you might be stuck in the cult of never enough include this feeling that no matter how much you earn, how many accomplishments you achieve, how much praise you receive, just doesn't feel like it's ever enough because you don't feel like you're ever enough. Or or almost the reverse, where you feel like your head is in this vice because you're getting these messages from society that no matter what ails us, the answer is simple. It's more. 
earn more money, do more things, be more successful. And so when you feel that you are in that kind of place and the activities and beliefs that are driving your day-to-day actions are no longer resulting in happiness and enjoyment, that may be a signal that you're trapped in the cult of never enough if you are earning a living wage. Is this a uniquely American problem or is this something we would find kind of if we cut a cross section across the globe, we would find it in in all different cultures and, and such? I I'm in somewhat of a unique position to answer that question because I'm uh, mixed race. My father's from India. My mom is, is from the United States. And growing up, I can remember going to India way before the economic reforms where consumerism had not touched the country yet. And I would say the cult of never enough did not exist in the way it does today. As I travel around the globe today in every developed country and in the populations in developing countries that are middle class and above, it exists. And the reason it exists is thanks to social media and media of all types, TV, movies, the sheer ease with which so many of us now have easy access to credit. There are good reasons and and benefits to having access to credit. It's enabled many of us to take steps in our lives that unless we came from wealthy families, you wouldn't have been able to do. But it also enables us to shoot ourselves in the foot by buying more than we can comfortably afford because we're influenced by these external images telling us we need more in order to be enough as a person. What are steps you take? to kind of take a look at things and reassess if necessary? Like, where do you, where would you start? Where should somebody start? Therein lies the problem. There are a lot of platitudes that we get five tips to seven secrets, how to get out of something. And when it comes to the cult of never enough, the only way out is through What my research led me to realize is that there are four core areas of factors, influences that come together for each one of us in unique proportion that can create this mindset. And the only way to be able to move on to the steps of shedding the mindset is to first dive in and understand which of those factors is affecting you and why. And the four factors are small T traumas, things that happened to you before the age of 25 when your brain is fully formed, cultural norms, this pressure to identify yourself with what you do, societal influences, which encourage us to wear what I call busy badges and idolize at the altar of nonstop movement, and then biological, evolutionary biological factors. Society's changed a lot, but our brains haven't kept up with that over the past couple hundred years. And so we can dive into those factors in in, in much more detail if you'd like, but it is an understanding of how those factors may have come to play in your own life that helps you understand the wound, the underlying wound that is causing you to feel never enough. And only then can you put the medicine on to start fixing it, as opposed to what we do in modern society, which is just try and put a Band-Aid 
over that underlying wound without diving into the multidisciplinary reasons that caused it in the first place. Yeah, please do dive into the to each of them a little more because it is specifically the the trauma before you're 25. Like it is a, as I get older, I am more and more amazed at the effects that things happen to people in childhood, how they stick with them. Because I think a lot of people think, yeah, you, you know, yes, it was bad. And I'm not talking maybe catastrophic, but I'm the smallest things stick with people. And really, it really is fascinating the effect those early years can have on you. It's huge. Um, two examples in the zeitgeist right now. Anderson Cooper recently came out and said, you know, at age 56, 59, I can't remember how old he is. He is surprised at how much family trauma that he experienced at age 10 and 11 is still influencing his adult life. Prince Harry, classic example of an individual clearly struggling with what happened to him when his mother passed as a young person. And and those are very big T traumas. In my case, I was bullied um, pretty mercilessly in fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. I was mixed race in a small town in Indiana, and I was chubby as all heck. And many Indian women, um, as they enter into puberty, start to grow uh, light hair on their upper lip in India. Moms know what to do. You get it threaded. But in a small town in Indiana, my American mom didn't know what to do. And the kids called me cow butt and thunder thighs and mustache mouth. And here I am at age 53. And what happened during those three years in fourth, fifth, and sixth grade put me on a trajectory that resulted in my nearly destroying my health, my relationships, and my self-esteem. And the reason is, when I was younger, the way I found solace, because I was completely ostracized by my peers, nobody invited me for slumber parties, the cheerleaders and football players made fun of me. I sought solace in my academics, and I sought praise and acceptance from my teachers. And then as you roll into the adult world, what replaces that but money and promotions at work? And so these these things can result that happen to us early in life can result in coping mechanisms that take on a life of their own when we are adults and do so in a way that no longer serve us. And in talking with executive coaches of extremely high level C-suite individuals, I've asked how many of your clients are driven by small T traumas. And the answer is shocking. It ranges from 75% to 100%. They're really painful, really powerful. And for so many people underlie that feeling of never enough and sucking you into that cult of never enough. Now dig into those, those other ones you talked about. Sure. So cultural norms is another one. Pretty common knowledge. You meet somebody, and within the first couple questions, what do you ask? What do you do? And we assign worth to somebody based on their answer to that question. And if we're assigning a worth to them based on the answer to the question, we're assigning a worth to ourselves based on that answer. And Derek Thompson from The Atlantic has written very eloquently about this in a number of pieces, but he speaks to what has happened to us and the way in which we relate to each other as humans 
as we've moved from having jobs to careers to callings and how we now worship at the altar of workism instead of connecting with each other as humans we we almost have work families if you will and yet those families are transient we don't stay at the same job for 20 or 30 years anymore and I will tell you, in my own case, what I find is I'm very close to my, quote, work family when I'm in one firm. And then when I move to the next firm, I stay in touch with my former work family for a year or two on LinkedIn with some likes. And then they fall off the radar and I'm on to the next work family. We don't have that continuity. And so cultural norms surrounding the role of work in our life because you can work 24-7, 365 these days, which you couldn't in years past, is another factor that can make you feel it's never enough. The third factor is societal influences. The most obvious one right now is social media and how it causes us to compare ourselves to each other in ways that are entirely false, right? Nobody puts up family vacation photos of the kids having a food fight or mom and dad giving each other the silent treatment, right? It's the kumbaya photo at the end. But even more insidious than that, I took a look at individuals portrayed in TV shows and in movies with normal jobs. You're a paralegal, you're a, a police person, you're a physician's assistant, And I took a look at how these individuals were portrayed as grooming, what kind of cars they drove, what kind of clothes they wear, what kind of homes they live in. And then I did some back of the envelope math and took a look at how much it would cost to live like that and then compared it to the average incomes of those professions. And across the board, you'd have to earn 30 to 50% more money than most of the people we see portrayed in any range of position on TV and media. So we, we compare ourselves, and I call it to counterfeit financial culture, to things that aren't even real. So that makes us feel never enough. And then the final piece, there are a lot of different aspects of evolutionary uh, biology that come into play, but one that I'll just highlight is that we used to maintain our safety. You know, somebody said, Manishan, Matt, I'm dropping you off in the woods 400 years ago. You and I would probably be able to figure out how to find food and shelter and forage our way and keep ourselves alive. But today, how do we meet our basic needs Well, we use money to buy the stuff we need, to buy shelter, to buy food, to buy transportation. And so money now is this thing that we need at a visceral level for survival. So that also can lead to this feeling of never enough. And so understanding how those factors come together for you is the only way you can move into the solution step And it's not fun to go through those factors. It can hurt. And so I think that's a lot of the reason why so many of us struggle with this feeling. We need to take a break. We will have more with Manisha Takor right after this. This is KYW News Radio In-Depth. 
And we are back on KYW News Radio in depth, continuing our conversation with author Manisha Takor. One of the things, because I've had a lot of discussion with people the last couple of years, because I think a lot of people during the pandemic did take a stock of things. And is this right. worth it? Do I want to continue to commute an hour and a half to to do job X and stuff like that? Part of the quote unquote problem is I think we as individuals only have so much control. Like if you are doing a job and you're do, you've been doing it at a certain level for seven years and it's kicking your ass like emotionally and mentally, but the people who sign the paychecks are used to you performing at said level. It is difficult to pull back and do the things you maybe need for self-care, but if you can't meet your expectations, that's going to cause a problem. How do you kind of handle that? Because that that can get dicey. I think it's one thing to say I want to do less and do, but if you still got to pay the bills, you know, you've right. got to meet the, the expectations that are set for you. Absolutely. And so there are two pieces to that equation. In my personal case, what I came to realize, going back to your initial question, what prompted me to go on this journey, I was living my life according to optimize a very toxic equation. I literally believed my self-worth equaled my net worth. Other people I've interviewed had different toxic things on the other side of self-worth equals. Yoga instructors tell me self-worth equals number of students in my class, number of private lessons. Academics tell me my self-worth equals the number of papers I publish and how many times they are cited in other publications. So the first step that I talked about is ultimately helps you identify what is the toxicity on the other side of self-worth equals for you. Now to address the very real and practical question you're raising, the answer I found was to live your life according to a different North Star, which is financial health plus emotional wealth equals money zen. Money zen is my phrase for a feeling of calm, confidence, and clarity around your relationship with money and the role that it plays in your life. And reassessing what financial health means to you is not fun for most people at the beginning. But once you start diving into it, many people find that the things that they feel they have to work hard in order to maintain in their lives actually aren't bringing them that much joy to begin with. And it can be anything from paying for soccer lessons when the kids hate the coach and you hate the commute to your mortgage when you realize you actually would rather spend a lot more time with your family camping in national parks than living in a house that constantly has something falling apart in it or perhaps has more bathrooms than humans now that your kids are out of the house and your empty nesters. So people, when they really start assessing, what am I working for? What of those bills that I'm paying are really bringing me joy and getting rid of the leaky money so that all your hard-earned money is going towards things that make you happy? Oftentimes that financial equation shifts 
And then you do free up energy and money to invest in that emotional wealth bucket. And going back to the study I mentioned, even along the way, I was emotionally bankrupt by the time I woke up and started to address this problem, but I was financially healthy. So just because you solve financial health does not mean that the that you're going to get rainbows and unicorns if you don't address the emotional wealth along the way. And the problem that so many of us have is that we're choking financially. And so we don't have the space to think about, let alone invest in our, our emotional wealth. And we're choking oftentimes because the small T traumas are driving us to do certain things, to strive after certain success, where the cultural norms are, the societal influences are. And so that's why it's a little bit of this Rubik's Cube of understanding what's causing the wound and then reassessing what financial health means to you and what brings you emotional wealth. In your process of self-discovery and writing the book, what was the biggest surprise? That I was pretty much a horrible human being for a good chunk of my adult life. And I am dead serious about that, Matt. I didn't go to my grandmother's funeral, for example, because I had some very important meetings in San Francisco, which I can no longer remember what they are about. My logic at that time was, well, Grand knows I loved her. She's dead. Why do I need to be there? Never occurred to me that funerals have existed for millennium because they are about the living, honoring those who've passed, but caring for those who remain and are in pain. I'm now divorced. My ex-husband had a very serious motorcycle accident. He almost lost his leg. He was in a, I think it was a 17-bed hospital in a very wooded rural area. Called me, said he was heading into surgery, and that's how serious it was. I didn't show up at the hospital. Once again, I was traveling for work for three days because the surgery was successful, and my thought process was, well, he's got both legs. He's in pain. There's nothing I can do about it. Like that's the kind of sick mindset I had because I was so obsessed with feeling my whole of feeling worthless that started when I was young and made fun of with work and not having any understanding that that toxic behavior was no longer serving me or protecting me and the way that getting good grades and, and being supported by teachers helped a little bit when I was back in grade school. I would say that was one huge thing that I learned was how many regrets I had about what values I had and how I treated people. The other thing I learned is how not alone I was in this and how many of us have struggled with these, these pains. And the third thing I learned is how much fun it is when you just admit that maybe you effed up big chunks of your life, but now you have a chance to do it differently. So how do you know what should make the light go off that you are stuck in this? A lot of people tell me they're so busy, they're not even sure. So I actually put together a quiz. You can find it at moneyzenquiz.com. 
six questions, but it's remarkably accurate in telling you where you are along the spectrum from being trapped in the cult of never enough to being fully on the path to money's end. So the quiz is a great place to go. But I will also say that when you wake up in the morning, if you are feeling that pressure inside of overwhelm and and dread or this sense that I'm constantly juggling so many balls and what's the point, that's the classic red light sign that you're in the cult. But the quiz can help you see if you might be heading in the direction before you get to that point. And so that that's what I've found is the clearest way for people to get a sense of whether this might resonate for them or not. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.